Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the Royal Academy's Architecture Programme Manager. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the first event in the Royal Academy season on the future of housing. This is the first time that the RA's Architecture Programme has put on a season of debates, talks, and an exhibition opening on the 7th of February, focusing <laughs> on a single issue. But amid the present housing crisis, the debate about where we live, how we live, how much it costs us, both individually and as a society, has grown increasingly urgent. Housing is an issue that cuts across architecture, social policy, economics, politics, governance, well-being, our very sense of belonging. It takes us to the core of who we are and who we want to be as individuals and as a society. And it's no coincidence that this uh, discussion is taking place 100 days exactly before this year's general election. Over the season, we're aiming to tackle many aspects of the housing debate, but in a way that aims to challenge established positions and unpick old assumptions. And this is no more the case than with this evening's discussion. So I'd now like to, to welcome our speakers, in particular our chair, Sarah Gaventa, who is Interim Director of the Architecture Foundation. She's previously Director of Cape Space and is this year curating an exhibition on public space called Never Mind the Bollards, opening in Store Street in April. Please join me in welcoming Sarah and our speakers. Thank you. Um, it's going to be a very kind of informal evening. I mean, we're very keen that we hear from the audience and we have a good and lively debate. So what I'm going to do is ask each of our speakers to sort of talk for five minutes around the subject, um, and then we're going to open it up for questions um, and for a good discussion, which will then be followed by well-earned drinks in the, in the bar, where we can carry on with that, carry on that conversation. So uh, um, first of all, I'd like to introduce Campbell Rob. He's chief executive of Shelter, and for those of you who don't actually know what Shelter does, it campaigns to tackle the root causes of the housing crisis and give practical housing support and advice. He joined in 2010 and was formerly a civil servant and had the, probably the best-sounding job title ever, Director General of the Office of the Third Sector in the Cabinet Office, which sounds so, so Orwellian, it's not true, isn't it? Um, and before that... <laughs> And before that, um, he was Head of Campaigns and Director of Public Policy at the NCVO. Campbell recently um, filled in a kind of questionnaire about what he would do if he was Prime Minister for a day, which I think is a really, is a really great thing. We should all try it. And in that day, he would ha get rid of the bedroom tax, build more homes, have a really good roundtable lunch discussion with all of those who object to and support house building, but no one would be allowed to have, be fed or have lunch until they came to an equitable conclusion about how we could create decently designed homes. In the afternoon, he would announce the creation of two new towns for 30 to 40,000 people. He would then, this is where it gets a bit dodgy, knight Andy Murray, and the bit that I like yeah, I best... just won Wimbledon at the time. <laughs> OK. ...is have a reception for Scottish football stars of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. I'm hoping Alan Hansen would be one of those, because I have a bit of a soft spot for him. So with no further ado, I'll hand over to Campbell. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, one of the challenges of, of my job is talking to lots of different audiences about housing and homelessness, and uh, I have had one piece of advice which I carry with me all the time, which was given to me by my, my younger daughter when I was asked to speak at her primary school uh, at Christmas about homelessness, and I was a bit nervous when we walking to school in the morning, 
And she was a bit nervous about her being embarrassed. She was eight, all her friends, all kind of in her dad's time. But I said, so are you absolutely sure that you're happy for me to do this? And she said, it's fine, Dad. Just remember one thing. And I said, what's that? She goes, just remember that you're not funny. And I said, I'm sorry. She said, don't tell any stories, don't tell any gags, don't try and be clever, just do that. So I walked into an audience of 409 year olds and said, it's 15 minutes on homelessness, no gags, it's going to be the longest assembly you've ever had. So please excuse me if I'm not funny, Uh, it doesn't come naturally to me. There's a couple of things I really, really want to say about the housing crisis and and where we are. Uh, This is a housing crisis. Uh, not made recently. This is a housing crisis made over decades uh, of lack of investment and an understanding of how important it is to have a home. Somewhere between the end of the Second World War and now in this country, we have unders- failed to understand a loss of our understanding of why the home is one of the, if not the most central important thing that people can have to give them a bedrock, a start, a chance in life. And we've lost that sense of it as society. Uh, but it's a massive bundle of other things because it's not just, and you look at shelter and you think what we do, it's not just poor people that is affected by the housing crisis. Some of them are affected more of it by anybody else, but it is across all single parts of the income spectrum that this housing crisis is now coming home to risk. We are sitting in a capital city, or one of the global cities, and we have, and London has always existed with wealth and poverty living side by side, but no, I cannot think of any time in now or in history when those polars have been further apart than they are now. So just to give you some sense of the scale of this crisis, more people are priced out of ownership. That's the dominant ownership, continues to be, whether you like it or not, the dominant means by which people have homes in this country. Over 65% down uh, quite significantly in the last 20 years is the most significant thing. And it is the thing, no matter what we say, that most people aspire to. It is what they want. It is what policymakers think we all want. It is what politicians think we want. But house prices have spiralled upward and are increasingly beyond the largest part of the population. The proportion of homeowners has fallen and it recently fell below the EU average. So for a, a, a country obsessed by home ownership with who has policies and politics driven by home ownership, we're on a downward trail. So something isn't working. Um, most people in the country want to own their own home, but more and more families are being forced into the private rented sector. Uh, the private rented sector has changed for the first time in, since the 60s. We've seen a very seismic shift in the last year. For the first time in 40 years, there are more people living in the private rented sector in this country than are living in the social rented sector. That's a very, very significant change in the demographic and the way that we live and the way that people live. And it's not just that. A third in the households in the private rented sector have children. Still, most people think of the private rented sector as something that students do, something that young people do. It is not. It is 9 million people living in a private rented sector, many of them families, many of them kids, and it is not fit for purpose. The tendencies don't work, the legal arrangements don't work, the protection for consumers don't work, the market is broken, no more so than here in London it needs to be fixed. But it's not just that end of the spectrum. It's not just young families, people on high incomes that are being affected by the private rental sector. This government changed the legislation to do with homelessness at the beginning of this parliament, which meant that the most vulnerable people, even people who are literally coming off the streets, uh, uh, having been homeless, can be now accommodated into the private rented sector instead of where they before they had a right to be in social housing. That has created its own uh, kind of vicious circle where the biggest reason why people are now made homeless is because of their failure, the failure of a private rented sector tenancy. 
So you get made homeless, you get given accommodation which is substandard, possibly even dangerous, with no support and no help and high costs. Six months you're out again because the landlord can get a higher rent or doesn't want you in there and you get no support. So it's not just at both ends of the private rental sector we're seeing that. Social housing is in near terminal decline. I mean, we can't even really talk about it. Just to give you some really boring but really important statistics, the social housing stock shrank by 44,000 last year. This government made a commitment to replace when it reintroduced right to buy on a one-to-one -one basis for every right one done. At the moment, it stands for every one, uh, uh, for every five sold, one is being replaced. Uh, our own research has shown that in 60% of the country, construction of social rented homes has all but stopped. Uh, fewer and fewer are being made, and just to give you an example of that, the last year was the single worst year for social house building since the Second World War. There were only 10,180 built in 2013-14. Just to give you an idea, in 1946, when this country was devastated by the outcome of the Second World War, we built twice that number of social homes in 1946. So, that's a whistle-stop tour, and that's me talking slowly to try and accommodate uh, all of what I wanted. That's a whistle-stop tour of just some of the problems. So this is a crisis that affects everybody, nearly everybody in the country, at both ends of the spectrum. All fits of it are broken. The to-buy market is broken, the private rented sector market is broken, the social housing market is broken. What are the solutions? I'm sorry, this is the simplest, and I, 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 it's a complicated, massively economically challenging idea, but the simplest and best way to resolve this house housing is to build more homes. No matter what you think, however clever you are, how many other ways you want to come at it, basically next year there will be 220,000 new households created in Britain. A whole range of different reasons from uh, divorce to uh, ageing population to immigration. And we will not build, we'll build less than 130,000 homes in that year. And year after year after year after year we've been doing the same thing. So if we don't build more homes, we don't fix the problem because fundamentally the cost is linked to supply and if the demand is low the price will stay high. In the meantime, uh, we have to protect the housing safety net which is being ripped to shreds day by day, week by week, with more and more people falling through the net and having less and less support for them when they have a threat of losing their home, regardless of whether it's in social, whether it's in private rented sector or not. So, in conclusion, and to allow the other speakers to have a say, because I could use up the whole hour and a half and I won't do that, uh, for me, and of course I would say this, preventing homelessness and having a home for everyone should be a fundamental touchstone of any society. Any society should judge itself. One of the things it should judge itself, does it provide all of its citizens with a home? At the moment, for far too many of the people in this country, that is a privilege for the few and not a right for everyone. We'd like to change that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Campbell, for all that passion. Um, I'd like to now um, ask Polly be to uh, speak. She probably doesn't need any introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway, because anyone who's called the living embodiment of the gardenista spirit and the Boudicca of the middle class, I mean, that's just a great thing to be able to say about somebody. A writer and journalist and a regular columnist for The Guardian since 1998. A humanist. Um, in a very bizarre twist, her views on relative poverty were liked by Cameron over Churchill's, I believe, so um, um, friends in strange places. Um, 
is about to publish a book that's out on Wednesday. Um, had published Hard Work, A Life in Low-Pay Britain in 2003, about an experimental period where she lived on the minimum wage um, in social housing, um, which seems incredibly relevant um, over a decade later. And Cameron's Coup, which is out on Wednesday, is an analysis of Cameron's um, government over the last five years and will be available at all good retail. There's some bad ones as well. (laughs) Over to you, Polly. Thank you very much. Well, I knew that Campbell would say everything that really needs saying because all of the information I ever get about housing really comes from him and his excellent experts at Shelter. They are the fount of all all knowledge and wisdom on this subject. Um, Latest report coming out tomorrow from the LSE, uh, Social Policy in a Cold Climate, from John Hills and a whole team of of other academics, uh, looks at the social policy record of this government. And it is, you know, he is the sort of the equivalent of the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, absolutely gold standard uh, facts and figures. And his housing statistic is that uh, housing spending fell by 44% uh, on Cameron's watch. Um, I won't go over all of the facts and figures that, uh, that Campbell's already given. I just thought I'd talk a bit about the politics. Uh, when Gordon Brown became, first became Prime Minister, just before the crash, he announced and felt passionately that housing was the thing that Labour had most failed on, and he was right. Uh, and was determined to put this right. But then the crash came, and, uh, of course, it got put back onto the back burner. Uh, The Tories came in and made various noises about it, but actually they've succeeded in building even fewer than Labour, which takes some doing. Um, They also brought in the idea of affordable housing, that all social housing had to be affordable, which means, of course, unaffordable, because it must be sold or rented at... Uh, at at, at 80% of the market price. Um, So how ambitious uh, are they looking now? Not ambitious enough. Labour promises to build 200,000 houses a year by the end of its time in power. So it's not really quite promising a million homes, which seems to me the absolute minimum they should be promising. There is a... Uh, it seems to me an extraordinary weakness in belief in uh, the ability to borrow. Of course you can borrow. Uh, it's not that difficult because uh, the IMF says you can as long as it's borrowing to invest. In far, so far as selling it to the people, one thing people do understand is mortgages. That if you say to somebody you can buy this uh, house and pay it back over 25 years, that sounds perfectly credible. But for some reason, the moment it's the government having a massive national mortgage to build houses, the Conservatives have managed to persuade people that this is highly irresponsible and not at all like like people's own uh, household accounts. I thought that um, it would be worth going back. I thought a bit of history. I thought we wouldn't, um, you know, we easily forget what was done before. Harold Macmillan was a hero of house building. And it's worth going back to that era. After the war, times were very hard, very austere indeed. Um, the Conservatives in 1951 narrowly won uh, a victory, and they pledged 300,000 homes a year. Um, 
they were recapturing the high ground, trying to recapture the, the ground they'd, they'd lost in 1945 and the spirit of 1945, and they'd moved on and leapfrogged ahead of, ahead of Labour on this one issue. It was at that time second only to defence in people's uh, list of what they cared most about and what they thought were the most important national issues. It was put onto what was called a war footing. There was, to quote the uh, report of the day, a large reallocation of shipping resources, foreign currency to obtain softwood, a special increase of 9% in the output of the cement industry, almost a million tonnes of coal, and about 2,000 million bricks uh, were, were, were commanded for this great effort. Um, the manifesto that the Tories fought on in 1951, housing is the first of the social services. It's also one of the keys to increase productivity. Work, family life, health, education are all undermined by crowded houses. Therefore, a Conservative and Unionist government will give housing a priority second only to national defence, which they did. And when they won, Churchill called in Macmillan, who was deeply reluctant, and made him head of housing. Um, he wrote in his diary, he asked me to build houses for the people. What an assignment. I know nothing whatever about these matters, having spent six years in defence or foreign affairs. I had, of course, hoped to be Minister of Defence, uh, but Churchill's determined to keep it in his own hands. Uh, Churchill says it's a gamble. Make or mar my political career. But every humble home will bless my name if I succeed. On the whole, it seems impossible to refuse, but oh dear, it's not my cup of tea. I really haven't a clue how to set about the job. But he did, because he treated it as in the same way as he had treated defence in the war. Uh, he, uh, he, was, he had already been a Tory rebel and was certainly on the, 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 the very left side of the Tory party, which people often forget. Housing had become a political arms race between the two parties. Uh, Macmillan took over from Hugh Dalton, who'd been Labour's um, previous housing minister. He wrote, <coughs> after losing the election, he, about Macmillan, he won't be able to build any more, uh, uh, if as many as I did. My last month showed 17,000 homes completed. Um, the, the government had so, many, so few... Uh, positive policies that they had invested everything in housing at that point. And, Wilson, and, and uh, Macmillan regarded it as, he said, a war job in the spirit of 1940. He set up ten, sorry, he set up ten regional housing boards, cut red tape, and brick making was uh, the great endeavour. It just shows what can be done. Thank you. Um, not easy, he said, and his critics said, you know, he'd used much too much of the nation's resources, devoting it to housing. Um, but he did, in the end, uh, preside over a massive increase. Um, what happened when it came to the next election was that they could boast. Here was their boast. Um, after a ruthless application of political will, um, the Conservatives pledged to build 300, this is in their manifesto for 1955, our party's pledge to build 300,000 uh, houses a year was derided by our opponents as impossible to fulfil. In fact, nearly 350,000 
homes were built last year and at least as many likely to be built this year. That shows that if you put housing as a top priority, which I would, uh, you could really do it. They did it with private housing, they did it with massive council housing. There was no evidence whatever that a huge social housing programme, council housing programme, in any way crowded out the private sector, as people say. Now, you mustn't do that. You crowd out the private sector. No evidence of that, whatever. In fact, they complemented each other and both increased enormously. So it just shows what can be done by a Conservative government. And goodness knows, the next Labour government should at least have an ambition as big as Macmillan's. Thank you. quite a neat segue and hopefully Tony will talk about what he thinks might happen under an, an, another government. Um, Tony Travers is Director of LSE London, London School of Economics, I beg your pardon, and Visiting Professor in the LSE's Government Department. He's an advisor to the House of Commons Children's Schools and Families Select Committee and CLG's Select Committee as well. He's also a board member of the City Centre for Cities. And I suspect, given that the title of this is Counting the Cost of the Housing Crisis, in his long and illustrious career, this is probably not the first uh, time he's been on a panel discussing this subject. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm always wary when talking about housing, particularly when real experts are here. I mean, uh, when I'm my uh, infrequent, I have colleagues who are very expert on housing, and my infrequent forays into the subject, I'm always struck by the, the sort of terrain littered with ideology and previous experiments that lies all backwards and potentially forwards. Um, clearly, what is different now is both our long-term as a nation reduction in the share of the GDP we're prepared to devote to capital <coughs> investment, particularly by the public sector, and second, of course, the rapid growth in the United Kingdom's population. For many years after the war, the worry was of brain drains and people leaving Britain. Now, far from it, you know, another international event has occurred today, which, however you interpret it, may well lead to more hot money coming to Britain and to London. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying it's a possibility. And, of course, Britain's sort of slightly odd status uh, as a place that produces unemployment, is English-speaking and is seen as a good, safe place to move hot money, hasn't helped in the discussion that we're now about to have. So I do think we can't ignore, none of us have, Polly didn't and Campbell didn't, the rapid growth in the population of Britain tilted to the south. London's population is growing at the rate of 108,000 a year, incredibly fast for an old city. That would require, what, 50,000 new homes a year, building 20, and that's actually not bad compared to some earlier years. So, you know, this is uh, it's not a losing battle, but it you know, looks a bit like that most of the time. So this is something where, as I think we'll all agree, pressure needs to be uh, sustained. There are clearly separate issues, which I've already alluded to, which uh, we haven't touched on tonight, about the risk that new homes, particularly in London and the South East, will be used as a way of storing capital, but that has all sorts of origins uh, which are not unique, frankly, to international capital arriving in London and in this, in this city, have to do with the difficulty of people deciding how to save money anywhere, including in Britain. And... Uh, all I'd say is about the 
easy, so I'm not saying anybody's saying this, the easy idea that somehow we should radically stop that is that I suspect it would lead to less affordable housing being built, which is a further complication given that we tax the new housing, at least in part to build some new housing, given how difficult it is to get the government, as Polly has said, actually to spend public money on the subject. Now, the efforts, the impacts of all of this are hard, uh, are, sorry, easy to see. We've heard them referred to already, the drop in home ownership, the rise in the number of people renting, particularly later in life, and so on. Now, the implications of what to do are, I think, very, very uh, challenging. Otherwise, somebody would have done something about it by now. Added to which, and I saw some Mori polling the other day, but I'm sure others have seen it, the government it doesn't really get the blame for housing in the way they do for other things. The public kind of doesn't really hold the government responsible for housing shortages in a way it does NHS problems or education problems or anything else like that. So that's another challenge for everybody lobbying in this field, which is that government isn't, doesn't feel, and their focus groups will be telling them this, it's quite as important as other things. And that's another issue. I'm not saying it, I agree with that, I'm just saying that's how it will appear when it hits politicians' desks. The question of how we use land in this country is fascinating. I mean, you know, I'm an urban person, I've long lived in cities and towns, but I'm aware of the fact that many people who live in cities and towns want to protect green land, want to protect the green belt in a way that people who also live, who live in the green belt and green land also want to protect it. Now that creates an enormous political hurdle which was not in place, for example, in the 20s and 30s when London was able to build 61,000 houses in a year. Think about that. That was, of course, eating up, munching up Middlesex, Kent and Surrey, uh, and we didn't think that was a very good idea. But you can do it, but it, that gives you a clue as to how it was done at the time. What we found more difficult, of course, is reusing industrial land because it's more expensive to use than using farmland, using new land, and the question of how we get ex-industrial land, and particularly in Midlands and northern cities, where there's plenty of it, but it's less attractive because fewer people want to live there, how that's brought back into use and made attractive remains, still, seems to me, still a major challenge for public policy. But if we just stand back from all of this for a moment, two final things I'd say. One, slightly, and of course coming third as opposed to first or second, I can have this luxury. <laughs> I, I absolutely take Polly's po point about the Macmillan government, and the, as the wartime spending declined, the capacity to use the money that had been spent on defence for welfare purposes. But, you know, and Polly and I have talked about this, no, at no time in modern history have both the major parties, all three of the major parties, been heading for public spending as a lower share of GDP in a way they are today. They're aimed... We've been used to a 43, 44%, 42, 43, 44% size state as a share of GDP. The Conservatives are aiming for 35, and Labour, as far as I can see, for about 38. Now, that is a difference, but they're both lower than 42 or 43. And, by the way, they now both appear to accept capital investment way lower than in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And if you think, well, let's spend more on capital, and personally I do, you mean less for a consumption. Fewer nurses, fewer doctors, that doesn't sound very good. So the question of how one would inch up public spending in a country where it's hard to push up taxes 
and then convince people to tilt that towards capital investment, particularly in the public sector, I mean, within the pu public sector, very difficult indeed. So I'll just make that uh, slightly awkward an unhelpful thought, but more positively, there's going to have to be more top-down government to make this work. Never popular. So greater use here and there of compulsory purchase powers, greater use here and there of the authority of government to drive through developments people do not want, and frankly, higher densities, even reusing land in suburban areas that people have always carefully protected. Now, even to say these things risks, you know, I'm waiting for oranges and bread rolls to be thrown. I know these are not popular things, but frankly, if we are to get the sustained increase that both Polly and Campbell have mentioned, and it would have to be over 20 or 30 years to level off house prices and then begin to make good the failures of the past, it will simply require more government. That's it. Sorry, that's it. Um, our final speaker is Alison Brooks, and I think uh, it's a perfect way to sort of end this panel in a way, because, I mean, architects quite often get the sort of, it's all the architect's fault, even though um, they're sort of quite low down the food chain in terms of making decisions. But are we also, having listened to the three speakers, saying that we need to find more innovative solutions, um, as you're talking about in density, um, whether we increase that, look, of, look at using sites in different ways, and could architects actually be, help, be part of the solution then often being um, blamed as part of the problem. Um, certainly, Alison has devoted her uh, practice to that of improving housing um, and is on a bit of a roll at the moment, actually. Um, she was part of the Field and Clegg Bradley's um, winning team uh, for the Sterling Prize for the Accordia Housing Project in Cambridge in 2008. Some of you may remember that. Um, I was sitting on the Zaha D table whose team said they have given the prize to a row of boxes, which um, I thought was quite funny because uh, they weren't that keen on the, the idea of creating housing. I mean, but I have to say that is, that is uh, the top, uh, in the top two or three of um, housing projects that all architects and others go to see in terms of, of a model of how we might create interesting, innovative new housing. Um, since then, she's also won Building Design Architect of the Year in 2012, um, AJ, Architect Journal Female Architect of the Year in 2013, um, and is now shortly, the only one she hasn't won is Male Architect of the Year, but I have high hopes of that. Um, and is shortlisted for the Olympic Opolis, I have to be very careful how I say that, competition that is currently underway. Uh, Alison founded her uh, practice in 1996, and you will notice from her accent that um, she's not local. She moved here from Ontario, Canada. One of those immigrants, there we go, adding to, adding to that <laughs> a great creativity to the city, if only we'd allow them in and, and give them somewhere to live. Um, and she had, like Polly, she has a book coming out this year called Synthesis, Culture and Context, which will be published towards the end of the year. Over to you, Alison. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. Good evening, everybody. Um, it's quite unusual for me to have to speak without slides and images, so I've written what I'm going to say, which might be incredibly dull, so I yeah, apologize for that in advance. Um, and I think I, I'm also going to speak a little bit as an outsider, although I've lived in the UK for 25 years, I, and I'm kind of an insider now because I've spent more of my life here now than I did in Canada. Um, 
I do have a kind of perspective, I think, that comes from being um, on the outside. So I've called my talk or um, piece a crisis in three parts, quality, quantum, and role. And I'm not really going to talk about architecture <laughs> or design. Um, a clear definition of Britain's housing crisis, I think, is crucial to this debate. Since I arrived in the UK 25 years ago, its meaning has changed radically as the economic and political situation has changed, both in the UK and globally. The crisis 25 years ago, after what seemed to be decades of stagnation, was one of housing design standards and quality. An unregulated urban housing market, free from space or design standards or provision of affordable housing, created exclusive ghettos that I saw as kind of contractor design and build. Um, Docklands was a kind of shining light of progress, but then it kind of failed in, in many ways. And the whole attitude towards housing was beginning to blight British cities visually and socially and by default economically. This problem was finally addressed by government legislation for affordable housing to form at least 30% of any new development. And in London, a regulatory framework to set minimum standards for quality of space and quality of life, the London Housing Design Guide. The London Housing Design Guide standards should, and I believe will, eventually apply to all new housing in the UK. However, they should be understood as minimum standards, and at the moment they're treated as minimum and maximum standards, so it's, it's a little bit of a stranglehold. The crisis um, evolved and then became, in my view, uh, one of lack of housing delivery, stockpiling of land by developers, delayed planning consents due to many factors, poor design quality being a big one, antiquated construction practices, protracted negotiation of planning conditions and Section 106 agreements between developers and local authorities. Yet even when all these hurdles have been overcome, I've heard housing developers say, even at the peak of our current housing crisis, we don't want to build this development or release homes any faster because we'll flood the market and we won't get the values. So, built into the business plan of market housing is a financial disincentive to deliver housing. Quickly. Isn't that ironic? But in recent years, the housing crisis has multiplied and metamorphosed into a much bigger monster. A monster that seems to distill the problems of neoliberal economic policies that illustrates the growing wealth inequality between the 1% and the 99% between older and younger generations and the shrinking middle class. There is a simple equation. The UK population is growing at 0.6% or 400,000 people per annum. Um, housing supply was 136,000 homes in 2014, so there's a shortfall of about two to one. But how many of those new homes were sold to investors rather than homeowners or residents? And this is something that Tony's re referred to. I feel that housing development in Britain's major cities is now subject to a much bigger force, that of global capital seeking refuge, stability, and an extraordinary rate of return. As Peter Rees has famously said, of London, housing stock is becoming stacks of safety deposit boxes for investors. 
And as, as a result, Britain will gradually become a nation of renters rather than homeowners. These stacks of safety deposit boxes are not solving the housing crisis. The 99% whose incomes have stalled in the past 10 years are being bought out by the 1% who are profiting from the lack of housing supply. First-time buyers, low- and middle-income earners who need to obtain mortgages cannot compete with offshore cash buyers or UK property investors, for that matter. So my question is, for the panel, for the audience, what, what systems of governance can be introduced to prevent this exploitation of Britain's housing stock for institutional or private profit and segregation of its population into haves and haves nots? Would it be so radical to reserve, say, 60 or 70% of any new developments market housing to UK citizens, like some European countries do? That's part one. (laughs) Part two, uh, one of the questions I was given um, was, how can architects help change the situation? And so... You know, it is, um, as been mentioned, it, you know, architects aren't normally the, the voice of um, change, political change, social change, or, or we've been quite quiet over the years, over the decades. But as an architect, I've been thinking about housing since my 1988 thesis project to regenerate an abandoned social housing project in Buffalo, New York. I determined that housing design was the architect's most direct form of political and social action. It's also the most effective way in which we as a profession can engage in the design of cities. It is deeply political and probably the most public form of building an architect can do. Housing is one of the institutions of civil society and is a mirror of its values. Nowhere is this more clear in Russia. I don't know if anybody's flown into St. Petersburg, but... You can tell Stalin-era housing from Khrushchev-era housing and Brezhnev-era housing, and each represents a very specific stage in the decline of the country's fortunes. The good news, though, is that here in the UK, there is a new generation of architects working in housing who consider housing their most important work. We work with developer or local authority clients to deliver high-quality we hope, beautiful housing that will form our future architectural heritage. We see housing as both cultural artifacts and social and economic infrastructure. And yet architects aren't seen as champions of this public good that we've been fighting fighting for all of our professional lives. My practice, Alison Brooks Architects, are designing a lot of housing in estate regeneration, And this has been a huge achievement for me, a realization of the work I'd started as an architecture student. But recently I've discovered that even the housing we're designing in London's housing estates is being bought by investors as soon as it's on the market. A few weeks or days after market launch, that a flat's on the market, it's being flipped for £10,000 or more than its original sale price. Or I see it advertised for rent. I think this is morally wrong, that estate regeneration projects, state land assets that are the failed housing estates of the 60s and 70s that are being reinvented with deeply thoughtful urban design and architectural quality and quality of dwelling in spite of the best intentions of local authorities and developers are becoming investment vehicles for speculators. 
I believe we as a profession and as a body of citizens working in housing need to speak out against this socioeconomic injustice. We must make our voices heard in government to ensure that our work in housing design benefits primarily those who are victims of the housing crisis. We need to express our politics and our ethics and help change the laws govern, governing the housing market. We as a profession can help instigate market reform. This could transform the future of many thousands of lives and help secure a high-quality social urban heritage for all. Thank you. Well, you've heard from all our four of our speakers, um, and thank you very much for your attention in what is getting to be quite a hot room. Am I the only one that feels like that? Maybe we could cool it down. I'm always cold, but in here I'm hot. I think it's because uh, it might be in all the numbers that we've been talking about. Um, it's called counting the cost of the housing crisis. So there was quite a lot to absorb. I'd really like now to throw it open to the audience um, and find out what you think and whether you have any ideas of how we can be more creative in terms of dealing with this current crisis. Um, great, we've got one already. Once, uh, I don't think we're going to probably solve it, the, uh, come up with all the solutions this evening, um, but we can continue those in the bar. Before you speak, I'd be very grateful if you could say your name and where you're from. Thank yes, you. Yes, my name is Elena Bezusi, and I'm a teaching fellow at the Bartlett School of Planning in UCL. I have a few points to make. Uh, the first is that we should not fool ourselves. A lot of gain from this housing crisis. In London and the southeast, all homeowners have gain from this housing crisis. We need to put the dots on the eyes. Uh, there's more than one housing crisis. There's one in London and the southeast, and there's different housing crises in the north of the country. We should be careful uh, about that, and the solution should be uh, directed to that as well. We don't need more housing. We need more housing where it's needed and at the prices that are needed. Uh, the mechanism in the planning system of Section 106 has failed to deliver any affordability to this country for, for years. Let's be clear about that too. Um, so let's be clear about building more social housing in this country. Uh, to me, the solutions are in tackling land values and the role the housing play as a property investment, as Alison Brook has put much clearer than me. So there's a combination of solutions with the property side of housing and housing as part of our welfare system. Housing replaces pensions, replaces our future, and that's why we need it as an investment. We need to tackle that as well. Um, and I think the privileges that this country grants to landowners and property developers are a, are a scandal that this country cannot afford. Thank you. I think we're going to have a passionate discussion. That's great. I think maybe we'll have another comment before we um, um, get a response from, from the panel. This gentleman over here, please. Uh, Nicholas for Herbert. Uh, and um, we won the Wilson Prize for our idea of building garden cities. Uh, I think it was Ebenezer so, Howard's idea to build well, garden yes, cities. Well, yes, but we brought it up to date because we said that you could only build viable housing in extensions to existing cities, making use of the existing infrastructure. And we drew on European experience. And I always find it strange that we tend to focus in Britain uh, on our history, and we spend little time looking at other places which have done things to tackle the same problems rather better. 
So I think if uh, one was to look to Holland, you would see how to increase housing supply. They deliberately did it and increased it by 7.6% in 10 years. They did it through urban extensions to places where people wanted to live and work. This is a very strange idea to the British, who always want to focus on places where people don't want to live and work. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me that in a crisis, you might look to the costs, and, which is the, the title. The costs of land, where in Holland it's typically 25% of the sales value, in, in Britain it will be 50% on average, much higher in London. You would look at the profits that are being made by developers or expected by developers and in Germany or Holland or anywhere in Europe. They're looking for much lower margins because the risks are much lower. So I think that we have to ask ourselves, how can we make housing a much more predictable product, which means, as Tony rightly says, we have to change the way we govern ourselves, not rely on the market. Rely on the market for the 100,000 or so homes that we do build, but then for the other 100,000, we have to provide some leadership. Um, in my view, it was rather sad, one last point, that uh, in Michael Lyon's otherwise thorough report, there are 39 steps uh, which he recommends, but at what I call the 40th step, which is basically about supplying land, they were too nervous to say. And it seems to me Labour has to have the courage, uh, perhaps that Macmillan had, uh, to see that unless you change the way we supply land and we value land, we will never, not only not only build the houses we need, we'll never rebalance our cities, we'll never create the wealth we need. So we should see housing, not in my view as a narrow housing problem, but as a solution to much wider environmental and economic problems that the UK faces. And let's learn from Europe and stop this silly business that we can, you know, we've got nothing to learn or things are different. Thank you. Um, Tony Allison, is that something you might want to respond to? The Dutch model? We were, you know, when in doubt, we always say, you know, the Dutch do it better. How do they manage to do it better? Well, can I respond to the other point? Is okay, that, all I right. Well, take your point. I, I, it's not identical. I mean, I could talk respond. to... Okay. But, uh, I mean, you raised this, the question which none of us mentioned, which I should have done, which all should have done, which is the taxation of housing. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty with... I mean, which, you know, is British domestic property taxation is madder than mad. <laughs> okay? The difficulty is, having allowed it to become madder than mad, you can't reform it. And... Uh, you know, to open a very awkward window, um, the mansion tax getting much publicity. If you think about the logic of the mansion tax, it's kind of catching up on years and years of not reforming council tax quickly for a tiny proportion of the population and then using the money to pay for the NHS. Everybody will want the money spent on the NHS, except you think, well, hang on, this is a tax on property. And actually, it presupposes, if the money's to continue to come in, the continued existence of a frothy property market, which in any rational world, a proper taxation system would have managed. So I'll just leave you with that, that thought. On, and on a related question, the, the failure of Section 106, and I don't disagree with you, except in the sense that I do think the government, we, the people who empower the government, have made Section 106 into such a complicated thing, we no longer know what we want. I did lie, uh, just briefly touch on this. We use Section 106 to tax new housing to build housing. Do you want to explain what Section 106 is? No, I'm is? so sorry. I just assume, forgive me, I did assume everyone. Anyone not know no, what no, no, Section No, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's effectively uh, taxing, I think it's larger new developments, in effect. A it's not supposed to be called tax, is it? It's a levy on new development 
to buy things. It was originally seen as buying roads and minor infrastructure, but it's now used as a way with community infrastructure levy, another way of taxing new housing in particular. It is housing only, isn't it, Campbell? Yes. It's a way of taxing property in order to build new infrastructure. Some of it's used for housing, some of it's not. But I'll just give you a, and I'll shut up in a minute, a clue as to how oddly it's now used. If you look at Battersea, lots of con controversy about Battersea, there it's being used to rebuild a power station. I mean, we're taxing housing there to rebuild a power station and build a tube line. Now, that means that the state has stepped back, and we're expecting the house prices and the business development there to pay for things the state used to pay for. So I agree Section 106 could pay for more, and doubtless the developers could take a smaller turn on the deal. But it is a very complicated way, and rather disguised way, of the state stepping back, and where it can do, exploiting high land values. Which needs to excuse my point. If, if, uh, the way that we tax housing in this country is madder than mad, as is how we manage our land in this country. And I couldn't agree <laughs> more with you. The most opaque... Uh, ownership of anything. I mean, we can find out so much now. We can take pictures of the whole you, uh, streets and Google Map. You still can't learn who owns most of the land that exists in this country. Uh, uh, the auctioning of land, the, the banking of land, uh, the general ownership, the way that we price it, the, the governments uh, couldn't agree more with Tony if we're going to solve this crisis. There needs to be more government taking more aggressive action to do those kind of things, whether it's um, uh, around the cities that we already have or in new places. But it is the land market that pushes up the value and makes it uh, and, and restricts the supply at the same time. And so you really, whilst I say build more houses, it's a shorthand uh, because we do need to build more houses. There aren't enough. The real problem that underlies that is fixing the housing market and then uh, fixing those who build it. We have a cartel of builders in the private sector who effectively build as many houses as they need to do to make the profit that they want to make. There's nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what most companies do. It just happens that the state isn't in that market anymore and the private sector doesn't build enough. So I couldn't agree more with you, despite you beating us to win the Wilson Prize. <laughs> uh, and it pains me as it does to do that. We were a brilliant second uh, if anybody's interested. But I couldn't agree more. It is land reform uh, that needs to do that and the only person, the only place that can do that is the state. Polly. Uh, we could be in this room a splendid citizen's jury. I'm sure we're all very sensible people. Most people in this room are probably very well informed. We know exactly how madder than mad the non-taxation of property really is. You can sit down and you say, right, you start with the council tax funding, you go back to, you know, a, a revaluation that hasn't been done since 1991. Yeah, crazy. You look at all sorts of ways. You might start with the principle, well, let's see, what are the ways of taxing where we can stop uh, property bubbles, where we can find ways. You just announce, you start by in, in, in announcing the intention. Uh, we, as a government, will make sure that property prices don't rise, on average, faster than ordinary inflation. Uh, and when we see it does, we will, if you like, slap on uh, capital gains onto everybody's homes so that homes are no longer necessarily going to be your pension. You wouldn't do it retrospectively, you'd just say from now. And then, of course, if the market cooled, then you wouldn't be paying any capital gains. Um, and there are a number of things that you can do like that, all of which would be eminently sensible, highly socially desirable, uh, very equitable, and entirely politically impossible. 
<laughs> That's what's so desperate. The, uh, you know, in this country, we have an 80% uh, very right-wing press, and the one thing on, well, of the several things on which they're absolutely agreed is that any form, any hint of any extra taxation on housing is absolute anathema, totally forbidden, can't be done, mustn't be done. And it terrifies all the political parties. They all take fright. It was very brave when the Lib Dems first came up with the mansion tax, and even braver for Labour to embrace it. It's now regarded as a terrible millstone round their neck by the sort of chattering classes. Actually, it's not. It's still very, very popular with voters. But, you know, you've got all of the mayoral candidates, except for Sadiq Khan, having ratted on it. And even, even Diane Abbott, for heaven's sakes, who used to be on the left, saying, oh, I don't know, that wouldn't be a very good thing, because uh, it clobbers the rich. And uh, you realise what a completely mad political world we live in. I don't have an answer to that, except to go on bleating from the <laughs> sidelines, as we will go on doing. But, you know, in whatever we construct here, whatever ideas we have, we have to remember just how difficult it is to persuade people. The Englishman's home is not only his castle, it's his pension, it's his children's future, it's uh, everything he hopes and invests in, it's his piggy bank, his savings, uh, and we just have to find a way to stop that being so in the future. Mm. Isn't the difference between the mansion tax and, and raising council taxes that the council tax goes to the council and the mansion tax goes to the treasury? Isn't that sort of part of the... Uh, that's a big difference, so I but I mean, you could have fixed that if you wanted to, you know. It's... Lots of things we need to fix. Alex, sorry, <clears throat> that's my neighbour, Alex, who's an architect, who's also um, speaking later in the programme, so you'll have to be short because you've already got a, <laughs> your own gig. Yes, yeah, so I don't want to give, give my gig away later in the no, month. Um, Alex Ely from May Architects. I, I want to deliberate who's going to build all these houses that we need. I think Alison kind of very rightly said that the private developers will drip feed the market to suit them. And it's, I think historically there's never been evidence that they've increased supply above 150,000 a year. It's kind of maybe gone up uh, 10, 20% or down 10, 20%. Um, the public sector clearly aren't ready to step in and build the sort of numbers that they built during the Macmillan government. Um, and even if you remove the um, cap on the housing revenue accounts and allowed local authorities to build more, it's still the projections are that they'll only deliver maybe 60,000 a year. Um, so I want to sort of reflect maybe on sort of Nick's observations about uh, European housing and Netherlands where... Uh, 45, maybe 50% of housing is custom-built or self-built. Why don't we have a culture in this country of individuals taking responsibility for their own housing? If the government could invest in the infrastructure, in the sort of glue that makes places, um, and think about the neighbourhoods and use government investing to, to build the infrastructure and then allow uh, different suppliers to perhaps uh, meet the demand. Hi. Good point. I had a meeting with Hackney, head of urban design today, and he said he was very excited because he's building social housing. Um, and he said it's really nice to be doing that again. And I don't think, I don't know how many London boroughs are actually, I mean, Newham are, but I mean, that seems something that's... Camden, Islington. Islington. But uh, not, 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 yeah. not many. That's certainly got to be uh, one, one of the issues. Um, would there anybody else, apart from the fact we could all move to the Netherlands, is there any other comment from the panel? Or, another question. Great. Thank you. Uh, it's Nigel Reynolds from Michael Orchid Architects. In fact, two questions, one just on the last bit, and that is, apart from the obvious, 
apart from money, what are the other constraints on the councils stopping them from building? And if it is just the money, what happened to the money from all the sale of the public properties, which I thought then was to be ring-fenced and not used elsewhere? Um, And I've never really had an ideal answer to that. The second and rather unrelated question was that um, the, the, perhaps the sort of UK's obsession with house ownership as opposed to renting, uh, which is far more predominant um, from sort of um, throughout a lifespan in Europe. Is that part of the problem as well? Should we be adopting a, a, a cradle-to-grave renting attitude in this country? So, um, okay, we'll go Campbell, Polly, and then Alison. Uh, right. I'm going to ask a, uh, two questions. I was going to, in terms of the question of who, uh, I do recommend Shelter's got an excellent report, which we did jointly with KPMG, uh, which sets out how uh, any future government could build 250,000 homes by the end of the next parliament, in which we make a whole series of recommendations about how you could increase both self-build and custom-build, and also uh, a new uh, small and medium enterprise building enterprise in this culture. We have, we've killed off over successive recessions and monopolisation uh, a small building sector. So it needs, it needs investment, is the answer to your question, we, and it will take some time, but we can make it happen. And as you say, the, the ability and the quality of self-build and custom-build in, in Germany and Europe is, is available, and we could, if we can make it happen, we could do it very quickly. So I won't go into the detail of those proposals, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. I'm going to let Polly tell you where the money went uh, uh, in terms of uh, for the sale of council houses because she'll do it far better polemically than I will. Uh, but uh, uh, but I think uh, I think you're, there is a question about that as a society that which we have to face up to around renting, around ownership, uh, and, and uh, uh, as we said before, uh, uh, everything is invested now. So many, uh, such a generation coming through now who have invested everything in their home as being the means by which they retire on their pension pot, their children's university fees. And so there's a generation who are very politically active, uh, who believe passionately in home ownership as the way forward. Now, in Germany, as far as I've got it right, actually most people rent, and then when they retire, they buy their home. Uh, it's a kind of different way of doing it, but there's a whole range of things. The, part, the reason why nobody would rent nobody would rent at the moment is because it's the most unstable, unsafe place to do it. Uh, and until you change the tenancies and the way that, that renting is viewed, and rent is a genuine place where you can grow with your family, at the moment, a family of four would move to near school, like so many people want to do, within six months, through no fault of their own, they can be evicted. How is that stability? How is that kind of thing? So you have to change the rental market before you even begin to change the perceptions around homeownership and renting. Yes, it's an absolute scandal that uh, councils were not allowed to use the receipts from council house sales. Not, not only allowed, not they should have been forced to use every single penny to build again. And, uh, of course, they haven't. And this government has made it considerably worse. Although they promised that there would be one in, one out, that every house sold would be replaced with more social housing, they haven't, by miles, by miles, is it five? Five. Five to one. Five, uh, they've only replaced one for every five that's been sold. There's been a big acceleration in the last couple of years, last 18 months particularly, of people buying their council homes, particularly in London. Uh, I wrote a, a story about this where uh, it's... It's now become such a scam. You know, people living in a hostel who were there for four, five, six years, absolutely stuck, four people living in one room and, uh, in, 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 in really bad conditions for bringing up a child, 
the occasional one of them gets a council home. And when they get a council home, they don't just get a secure home for life, thank goodness for their family. They get gifted uh, you know, a huge bonanza because these private, company, these private agencies move in, help them to then buy their council house, give them a bit of money so they can move off to Birmingham or somewhere, buy somewhere cheap at a £100,000 discount. So the incentives to sell your council house uh, if you haven't got your money, money yourself, agents will move in quite legally and do it for you, uh, is just disgraceful. It means that we are now shedding council housing, as you were saying, at a faster rate than ever before. Uh, and it's desperate and should be just stopped instantly. Uh, that article, um, which I think was in November last year, it's on the Guardian website, um, and it's pretty harrowing about life in a hostel, and I do recommend you all read it. Alison. Um, well, I'd like to tell a slightly good story. It's not all doom and gloom. There are um, some councils who are doing great things to turn their estate around for regeneration. For example, Brent Council, that we're doing a lot of work with at the moment. They have a rolling program in the South Kilburn Estate where they commissioned a master plan in 2005. The master plan is phased. Each phase uh, comes forward with 50% affordable, 50% market sale. Towers are coming down, five, six-story mansion blocks, and even some mews and terraced houses are going up. Um, everybody is rehoused who wants to be rehoused, and um, they use the land receipt to move on to the next project, to sponsor the project, and take projects through to planning consent, which... Um, referring to one of the earlier points, removes risk um, and huge amounts of wasted time from the scenario where developers come in and bid with a design team or without a design team to bring forward projects um, but then are in a kind of low-grade war <laughs> throughout the planning process because the... Um, Planners want something higher quality and the developers are not incentivized to deliver something very high quality. So when the, the um, council acts as the client, sponsors the project, they can set the brief, set the mix, set the program, um, commission you know, stage competitions, which is the way we've won our work through design and um, consultant team tenders. So they pick the architects, the team they want, the price at a very competitive price, and then work with the design team through the design stages to get a planning consent. And this happens generally within six to seven months. And we've worked with developers who've taken years to get a planning consent on a, on a site for, say, 150 units. So this kind of streamlining of the process of, a plan of obtaining planning consent is a direct result of being commissioned by the planning authority to, because they have a long-term interest in their um, estate and in the regeneration of places socially and um, physically. And uh, it's a much better model. And it's, it's kind of a, a great model. And then the projects are tendered to the market, <laughs> to a design and build contractor. And that's where, you know, sort of market forces come in. And generally, there tends to be a year-long negotiation between developers and the council to ensure that the sort of partnership agreement delivers 
what the what the council wants. And the architects tend to be bumped off in this process. There are very few councils. Not that literally, not as in. They're not in the concrete. Um, where, you know, the councils are under so much pressure to illustrate value for money and competitiveness, they don't feel that they have the authority to actually innovate or, um, you know, uh, demand that the design team carries through to the delivery stages. And that, so there's a huge waste of time there um, because a new design team comes on board, a new consultant team comes on board, and the developer agreement takes a year and a half to negotiate, and then the whole process kind of slows down. So, you know, it's starting to change. Some local authorities are starting to insist that they're in their uh, estate regeneration projects the design team carries through because everybody knows that, uh, you know, six months or eight months on a building project is worth, you know, millions and millions and far greater than any cons consultant's fee um, differential. So... Um, I think, you know, in my view, when we're commissioned by local authorities to design housing, it's like working for an end-user client. There's a long-term interest in the regeneration, uh, the integration of an estate into a wider neighborhood, a kind of normalizing of the relationship between the street, the front door, how you get from, from your car, from the tube to your house, and the whole material quality, architectural expression, character, um, space standards, the client is on the same side as, as we are. And that is, um, I think, where everybody would like to be. But one thing we haven't really talked about yet, but another part of the housing crisis, I think, is this procurement model of design and build, where um, the, the whole kind of design and tendering and building process is in the hands of, of a, a kind of market force that doesn't have an interest in long-term quality. So until design and the mentality of that design and build delivers value for money changes, I think we're, we're also stuck. That's another fundamental reform that has to happen. Yeah, good point. Tony. To add to Alison's excellent description, I think that in that excellent description lies the um, evidence of another challenge, another issue, which is that um, the planning process itself, particularly given the complicated history of social housing in big cities, is now itself a barrier to entry to anybody other than really big developers. I mean, if you listen to what we've just heard, you know, trying to do these things, you know, trying to do anything other than one-off projects here and there, it's a terrible barrier to entry. And it makes it much inevitably easier that big developers will be able to take all of these risks and the long, long-term negotiations that are required. And, of course, I suspect, and I'm a big localist, you know, Polly and I often debate these things, um, uh, me more localist normally, but, you know, I can see how the complex history of local authorities as developers in the past makes them less confident than perhaps they should be, and developers inevitably are used as the vehicle to deliver projects which councils themselves would find it very hard to drive all the way through because there is so much opposition to so much development, including really good new development, because it will be politicised. It will always be politicised at the local level. Comments? Um, lady down here. Thank you. 
Um, my name is Lucy. I live in New Cross in Lewisham, which is an area um, where a lot of housing is needed, family housing. And of course, what is being built is um, lifestyle apartments, one, two bed, um, at very, very high prices, some of which is, of course, dubbed affordable housing. And the question is, who is it affordable to? Um, it's not affordable to um, probably two-income professionals anymore, never mind um, people with families, people on lower wages, never mind anyone on the minimum wage. Um, my question was, we're talking about the councils. Um, how much ca control do councils themselves have over this now? And that's something Campbell might be able to answer. Um, and in your view, Alison, why the councils who are working with you to control their own stock and do it directly, why do you think they are doing it? Is it are they particularly bold and brave? Um, is it very difficult for them to do that? Tony touched on it saying that you know, there's a lot of opposition to it. But it was those two things, really. Why are the councils that are doing it doing it? And Campbell, how much control do they have? I know in our area that um, apparently certain developments that have gone ahead and local people have been incredibly shocked that permission has been given by Lewisham. The local council is fully Labour controlled and apparently permission was denied by the council but the Mayor of London stepped in, overruled and gave permission and I think that's a big issue that a lot of people aren't aware of. Campbell and Alison, can I ask for very quick responses so that we can try and get at least maybe one or two more quick questions from the audience before we head to the bar? Does that sound like a plan? Good. There you go. I'm standing between all of you and a drink, so I'm only going to take about half an hour uh, to answer this question. Uh, uh, our donation to shelter. Smart man. Uh, I was just going to say two, one thing. If there is a more bastardised word in the English language than affordable that exists right now, I, I cannot think of it. It is a word that has been stretched beyond all reason and understanding when it comes to housing in particular. Uh, um, uh, but uh, in answer to your question, the councils have very little. Uh, uh, the, the money that the, this government gives towards housing associations, particularly to build, uh, is called an affordable house building programme. But what that means is that houses and new houses are built at a percentage, as, as Polly mentioned, of, of market rate. So in Lewisham or wherever that can be, it can be up to 60 or 70% of market rate, which is not affordable in the sense that we would all understand it in this room, within the reach of uh, families or people on a minimum wage trying to work it. And the Mayor does have the power in London, as you say, and has done in other developments, not just the one in Lewisham, brought developments back in that have been rejected by local authorities and sent them back out. Section 8 is effect, Section 106 and is now effectively used by councils who have no money and they basically take money off developers so that they don't have to put any affordable housing in the programme and they can use that money to build housing. But why does the mayor do it? What's uh, well, the, 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 the mayor does it because he sees development, I suspect. I wouldn't like to speak on his behalf and I suspect oh, go he on. definitely doesn't want me to speak <laughs> on his behalf. I don't think I'm ever going to get a job as his official spokesperson. He would argue, I suspect, it's the global uh, capital e economic situation. Tony would be able to answer this better, that you have to have these developments going because they bring money into uh, the capital and you have to be open to foreign investment and all those kind of things. That's generally, we have to compete with all the global cities so you can't uh, uh, and these are, these are the way to attract uh, money and investment. If we stop it then it goes to Paris or New York or something else. I think that's what would be the argument against Alison, very quickly. Oh, I've forgotten which question I'm supposed to be answering. <laughs> <laughs> um, why is it that local authorities... 
Yes. Well, because I think they, well, they're civil servants. You know, they are acting in the best interest, or should be acting in the best interest of, of their citizens. And their ultimate goal isn't profit. Um, and a lot of them, especially people in various planning departments, they actually understand the value of the built environment, the impact that the quality of the built environment has on people's worldview, you know, how you feel as a citizen, like how valued you are, or, um, you know, on the contrary, how you, you, your built environment is neglected, is a kind of, has a direct impact on, on people. And so I think the, and, and some of them actually really love architecture. <laughs> and they, um, yeah, there's just a sense that they are, doing something that will provide long-term societal value. So I think it's about values and ethics, and it's about the ultimate, you know, the, the end game and the goal, and it's a fundamentally different one. Not from all develop. you know, there's some developers out there who do want to make a difference and help solve the crisis, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a different culture completely to um, work with a yeah, civil okay. client. Nice to hear the word ethics used. Christian, sorry, come on, I know. Very good okay. model maker, should you ever Hi, need one. Sorry, Christian Spence-Davies, A Models. Um, a very simple question, hopefully a one-line answer. But um, Where would you choose to put 100,000 new homes, and who would you ask to build them? Sorry, two questions. Great. I've got an answer. <laughs> quick, really and quick. then we'll maybe, maybe we'll go along. That would be quite a quick one from yeah. everybody. I would finish the new towns rather than going out and building, in, you know, um, garden cities and all of these things, uh, pitching windmills into uh, greenfield sites. Just finish the projects that were started 40 and 50 years ago and were never finished. I mean, it's such an obvious, it's not the only solution, but I think it's one solution that's never been discussed. And I think Alison might build them. Right. Tony? <laughs> I'd go inside London, Barking, Riverside, and all the other ex-industrial sites that still need signing up to public transport and then building with decent housing, reasonable densities. Use the, use the sites we've got inside London first. Polly? I agree. There's a lot more uh, land around than people think. People say London's full up. Actually, it's not. Huge mm. differences between different boroughs as to how they use every little bit of land they've got. Camden has uh, discovered it's got huge amounts of land and mm. it's incredibly valuable. So it's quite easy to use, build on, um, you know, the, the, the wealth of, uh, the, the high price of property can work uh, to the advantage of councils selling off a bit, building a lot. Uh, at Shelter has a fully worked up proposal for a new town in the, in the Hugh Peninsula, which would be forty to 50,000, which came a credible second to an earlier entrance about uh, in, in the Wolf Surprise. Uh, and then the rest, uh, I would do a combination of uh, what Tony's suggesting, but also uh, use up much more defence and public land uh, much more quickly and get that, onto, uh, uh, get that out and get it sold. The government can do it if it wants to do it. It chooses not to. Uh, it says it's trying to, but it really doesn't. Great. I'd definitely get, uh, I'd definitely get a bill uh, from the, on the stage, definitely. Uh, Great. Um, the final question, there's a gentleman who's got the best seat in the house in the corner. Um, one way to um, improve the supply of housing and also bring down the price of housing 
uh, would be to have more land with planning permission. And all the councils in the country are under duty to provide five years supply of housing for planning purposes and it's their duty to uh, assess what the housing need is over the next five years. Most of them are not doing this. Uh, hardly a week goes by without the Secretary of State deciding that a council has failed to provide five years supply uh, and so there's widespread failure in councils to provide five years supply of housing for planning purposes but not only that, but the actual supply of housing by local authorities in their five-year calculations is based on the premise very often that we're never going to come back to a normal economic situation again and that there's going to be a continued recession or part recession. Uh, don't you think that um, something could be done by galvanizing local authorities into providing a more exact estimate of the need for their five-year housing plans. Anyone want to comment on that? Tony. Well, I, I think there's pretty wide agreement, and I think you're part of it, about the need bit. I think the difficulty is how the system, and there's lots of aspects, and almost all of them we've touched on this evening, how the system reacts. And, and, the, and inevitably... Uh, we know that people, particularly, you know, although Britain isn't as crowded as it's often said it is, some of it is quite crowded, quite densely populated. They're not that densely populated. But people do react, even though they know we need more housing, they clearly react to development. And I'm afraid that's why on occasion upper levels of government are needed to, and you know, I'm generally a localist, but to override some of the opposition. And sometimes, in fairness to the Mayor of London, the Mayor of London will override boroughs' objections. I'm not saying they're all you know, the right thing, but will override them. And the boroughs privately don't mind that because they get somebody else to make the decision. Ditto the Secretary of State. So uh, that's why, in the end, I think, in a period, you know, the, the, more, the more demand there is for something within a relatively constrained piece of land be it Britain or London or Manchester or whatever, then the more government is needed. And that, I think, is what I, you know, I still think a bit more top-down will be needed to get us off this particular hook. OK. Um, we've got five minutes or so. Um, Robin, I noticed you had your hand up. I'll, I'll break my own rule and let you quickly make a comment. And then I want to I do a bit of a poll um, across the audience and find out a little bit more about you before we head to the bar. Uh, Robin Nicholson, Cullinan Studio. I'm an architect. Uh, we've heard about political impossibilities. Is it impossible to densify the suburbs? Because there's a lot of land and there's now relatively good transport. No, not... It's... Alison? No, I think it's absolutely possible to densify the suburbs. It, I mean, it's been said on the panel this evening that there are so many opportunities, not in only brownfield sites, but in a lot of the suburbs that were sort of interwar suburbs, uh, which have, you know, declined in many places due to, you know, lack of transport connections, um, poor build quality, masses of potential re regeneration is available in the suburbs, but it's an issue of land ownership. You know, somebody has to go in and CPO huge swathes of... Um, 
suburbs that aren't dense enough and are generally very poorly built houses that are also generating a massive carbon footprint. So I, I think that that's a huge area of opportunity, definitely. Okay. I mean, Polly made the point about uh, some boroughs being much more densely populated than others. The population of London, and we're not only talking about London, but London today is 8.5 million, 8.6 million. And we're told it'll soon be 10 million, 2030, 2032 or something. Well, to deliver that density, the whole of Greater London would have to be built at the density of Ealing. Ealing, queen of the suburbs, all those trees, wonderful place. So it's not as if it has to be high-rises or overcrowded. It can just be... Now, the, but, uh, the point Alison always made... I mean, the question is, how can we give incentives to people to want a bit of infilling and, and Polly's point about how Camden found lots of sites, lots of boroughs have lots and lots of sites and Camden's point about the public land, that you know, the way in which bits of the public sector hold on to land as ransoms themselves. I mean, all of the public sector does this. So assemble a bit of that. Again, a bit of... I'm amazed, you know, I'm always amazed how unempowered government is. So I do think it can be done. Bit of incentive, bit of working out what's there bit of top-down, I'm costing, as I sound Very, like very quick. Uh, there's a conversation that we all need to have in this country. We have it all the time with people all over when we talk about building more homes, which is we talk to people all the time and they say, my street, my town, my community, my block is dying. Now, why is it dying? Because the young people don't stay here. There is no school. School role is falling. The shops are going. Uh, the hospital, the a and is being closed. Why, uh, well, why is that? Because young people don't stay here. Why don't they stay? Because they can't afford to live here. Why can't they afford to live here? Because we don't build anything else. And then you say to them, can we develop anything around here? And they say no. Until we get past that exactly. point of the conversation, we're going okay. to be having this conversation in another 50 okay. years. It takes everyone in this room to show leadership. It takes politicians to take leadership. But we all have to change our mindset to make that happen. Okay, I'm going, throw, I'm going to throw a little bit of opposition into this. Good. Architects always want to build big. I can imagine. I can just see us going into, say, Penge and Mottingham. You've had it. We're going to CPO you. We're going to knock down this vast area and build Estates. some great, mm. big, wonderful new city in a, in a suburb. And I can absolutely understand the temptation. You go around some of exactly the sorts of places you're talking about and think, just knock it all down. But all of the work, for instance, of, of uh, Anne Power at the LSE uh, and all of the work that she's done suggests that infilling, changing, small-scale development uh, is going to be far better as a way of, of, of gradually growing up a community than deciding to knock down homes. So we did that. You know, half of Battersea was knocked down. Vast swathes of London were knocked down to its great detriment when it could, in fact, have been creatively infilled, as you say, you know, the density of Ealing is not too scary. I would say that actually it's not architects who want to do that. It's planners and developers who want to do that. Um, I've been working in the Elephant and Castle, and I could say it could be a nicer place um, if some of its authenticity and what was there was kept, because I think the big problem with this uh, tabula rasa is everywhere begins to look the same. You know, and um, that's one of the nice things about London is you can normally tell where you are by the architecture. So I wouldn't blame the architect, but um, blame the planners and developers. Now, very quickly, how many people in this audience don't feel they'll ever be able to buy a place in London? Okay. And that's not just all the most 
well, youngest looking people here, but there's, there's some of that. Uh, no, my, my husband was telling me that he's lost a couple of young staff because they can't afford to live in London. So I would also like to know how many, you know, we, I think this city is losing a lot of talent and this is supposed to be the creative hub and the government keeps going on about how creative London is. How many of you think you might go and live somewhere else apart from London because of this? That's really real. That is a very sad thing to see. Now, or is that, that a good thing? Do we well, want people to spread out? For London, maybe. Well, maybe it's... Just, yeah. Yeah. How, how many people want to go and live somewhere? How many people would rather stay in London than leave? There we go. But I think they might have to leave. Maybe it's a different stage. But surely, but maybe, I, w- I would have thought if... Well, when I came to London when I was 21, it was the place I wanted to be, or come to any city, for example. But I'm, I'm seeing a lot of hands of, uh, from young hands as well saying that uh, London's not where they've been. Where would you go? Other cities in London? Uh, in England? Bristol. 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 Okay, okay. So it's about going to as other a, cities. As a terrible private rental sector, be very. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that conversation Birmingham. for you later. Can buy a house for 60,000 in Birmingham. Well, there we go. Birmingham, Birmingham is the <laughs> new creative hub. By the there we go. So I, I apologise for the fact that we haven't solved the housing crisis. I would like to thank you for your attention and for exercising your arms, because now that you can go into the library, not the bar, and exercise them in a completely different way. On behalf of you all, I'd like to thank all our great um, speakers for their presentation. Um, it's a, a subject that I think we'll be hearing a lot more about, particularly this year. So on behalf of everybody, thank you so much. Um, and see you outside. Thank you.